Alrighty, good morning everybody. Uh, welcome back to the uh, larger catechism class. We've been doing a series on the Lord's Supper. It's going to be a total, I think, six weeks. There's ten questions in the catechism about it. Uh, last week we were looking at really the doctrine of self-examination in relation to the Supper. Um, how we can examine ourselves, what that means, what it means to be sort of in a state of constant self-examination. And today we're looking at, in light of that self-examination, might there be people who come to the conclusion, I ought not partake of the Lord's Supper? And are there other people that maybe also shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper? Uh, We'll start off with question 172 here, which asks this. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? Okay, the doubter here. The answer is that one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, may have a true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account has it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made, and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, He is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. Uh, Let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the different means by which you strengthen our faith. And we do confess that at times our faith is weak. At times we wonder um, how much of it we really have. But we thank you that you um, are there for us in our weakness and that you strengthen us and encourage us, and that you're the one who's keeping us ultimately, not we ourselves. Uh, Bless us as we look to the teachings of your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big theme of this question here is that the Lord's Supper is not meant to be a hindrance to our assurance of faith, but actually a help to our assurance of faith. So the answer begins here saying, one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. So they're saying the person who lacks assurance doesn't necessarily lack faith. Because assurance isn't the root that grounds our faith. Assurance is the fruit of faith. And assurance is a little different than strong faith. It's it's a self-awareness of the reality of faith. But Um, The confession teaches us that assurance is not of the essence of faith. You can lack assurance and still be saved and have true faith. Um, It's possible to doubt both your sanctification and your salvation even, and yet still be sanctified and saved. And God is such a God that he deals with us very gently in our doubts. Christ, uh, we remember in Isaiah, he doesn't snuff the smoldering wick. He doesn't break the bruised reed. Uh, We think of even how many times in the Psalms does David just speak, or the other psalmists, of just uh, the farness of God, the doubts they have of their relationship with God. I think of Psalm 77, asking questions like, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said, this is my infirmity, but... I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High God. And it's all right to follow the example of these psalmists, to feel like you're in a desert season, to feel like 
God is far from you, to perhaps even feel like he's forsaken you. God's stronger than even our doubts. Uh, We think of Jonah, who's walking in disobedience to God, intentionally disobeying God's commands, swallowed by a great fish, must have been in the lowest of low points, thinking God has totally forsaken him. He says in Jonah 2.4, Then I said, I am cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward the holy temple. Couldn't Jonah have so easily just despaired and given up, be like, I messed up, that's it for me, poor Jonah, I'm done for. But yet he knows God's mercy and grace such that he says, I'm going to again look to your temple. Even though I'm in the worst state I've ever been in, totally disobedient, totally unfaithful, yet I'll look to your temple, the place your presence is, the place where our help comes from. A faith is that glance towards God, and God welcomes even the weakest glance towards Christ. And so we confess in the OPC that the doubter might have true faith in Christ. And the answer continues saying that, In God's account, this doubting person has it if, and there's going to be three things here. First, if he is duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. Okay, so that's saying this person um, feels, they apprehend that they are lacking what they would have in Christ. They're lacking the assurance they want. They're lacking that assurance of salvation. But it's saying that just having an apprehension that you are lacking and desiring it, that is an evidence of being in Christ, and this person is going to be welcome to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, de- the desire for the salvation is sufficient for the reception. And we often have this weird thought that um, we might be desiring mercy from God and pleading for him for mercy, and he might not give it. Uh, That's never the case. God always gives mercy to those who truly call on him for mercy. The idea that you could be a person who's been your whole life desiring God to save you, um, seeking mercy in Christ, knowing you can't save yourself, and just wanting God to save you, there's not a person like that that's not saved. Those are the doubts of a believer, not the doubts of an unbeliever. God gives mercy to that sinner who just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was that Pharisee that didn't ask for mercy, that didn't receive. And so Matthew 3, 5, and 4, or 5, 3, and 4 reminds us that blessed are the poor in spirit, right? It's not the rich in spirit that are blessed, but the poor in spirit, those who know their need for Christ. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, Not the ones who think they have nothing to worry about, nothing to mourn over, no sin to worry about. It's those who mourn that find the comfort of God. So one who is affected with their want of what they would desire in Christ. Secondly, the one who unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ. Okay, so unfeignedly here means without faking it, right? The one who can say, I really desire to be found in Christ, and they're saying so sincerely, not in a fake way. And we often, I think, overthink our hearts. and think, well, is it genuine? Am I really sincere? Am I not? It's often more clear-cut than that. We know in other scenarios if we are feignedly saying we want something, right? If you had your kids and you were maybe at a Wiggles concert and they wanted to go backstage to meet the Wiggles or something like that, and you would maybe say, say, do you want to be with the Wiggles? Do you want to go hang out with the Wiggles? And you might sort of feignedly say, yes, I totally want to be found with the Wiggles. You know that that's a a feigned desire. Um, You know that you're not really sincerely desiring to be with the Wiggles. 
And it's as clear-cut with Christ. It's not just that I'm not sure whether I want to be found in Christ. You either want to be found in Christ or you don't want to be found in Christ. Um, You desire to be found in Christ because you don't want to be found in Adam. You know that if you're going to be found in Adam, you'll be sunk because you can't stand on your own. And so there's a humility here saying, I need Christ. It's a recognition of our creatureliness and our sin. And so Psalm 10:17 reminds us, um, as the psalmist says, Lord, you've heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. All throughout scripture, we read of God's nearness to the humble, his love for the broken, for the contrite spirit, for the brokenhearted. God loves doubters. God doesn't reject you because you struggle with doubts. If you unfeignedly desire to be found in Christ and unfeignedly desire, see to depart from iniquity. That is, you want to be done with sin. You want to reach that heavenly land where, you'll, where you won't have to battle against the flesh anymore, where you won't have to once again fall into that same old sin. And you know whether you sincerely desire to be done with sin or you know if you sincerely desire to probably get away with sin. Um, that if, no one would, if you could have the guarantee that no one would ever find out and there would be no negative consequences, you would love to indulge in all sorts of sins. You know whether you ultimately want to be free from sin or want to be full of sin. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this sealed. The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the call, to be departing from iniquity. That is, the direction of your life is away from iniquity. Not that you've reached a particular destination of a certain level of sinlessness, but that the direction is departing. The path you're on is walking away from sin city towards the heavenly city. Maybe you haven't got very far on that path yet. Maybe sometimes you take a couple steps back. But the overall orientation and direction is you want righteousness, not sin. And so, okay, if you feel a lack of assurance about being actually found in Christ, but you do sincerely want to be found in Christ, and you sincerely want to be done with sin, then we confess that you are supposed to come to the Lord's Supper, okay? You, this is, is the person that ought to be coming to the Lord's Supper. Because the answer continues, in which case, because sac- promises are made, and this sacrament is appointed for the relief of the weak and doubting Christians. And then it'll continue later on. He may and ought come to the Lord's Supper. Right? So the Lord's Supper isn't for just the strong Christian. It's also for the weak Christian. It's appointed for the relief of weak and doubting Christians. That's what we confess in our whole historic tradition. And think of all the sort of statements of Christ that reflect this. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 12, uh, 20, quoting Isaiah, A bruised reed he shall not break, and smoking flax he shall not quench till he sends forth judgment to victory. Matthew 26, 28, For this is, my blood of the new co- this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, not for pats on the back or attaboys to those that are doing a good job. The Lord's Supper is for the remission of sins. That's what Christ's blood was shed for. It was for sinners. Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the Lord's Supper is for sinners like you and like me. And so if you're thinking, oh, well, maybe I thought, you know, I was struggling with assurance. I'm struggling with sin. 
But I do want to want Christ. I do want to be found in Christ. I do want to be done with sin. Uh, what should I do about that? If I'm supposed to come to the Lord's Supper, um, should I be content with that? Well, no. Here's what you're supposed to do. The answer says, he's to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. That is, confess the sin of unbelief. You're allowed to confess to God the sin of your own unbelief and to labor to have your doubts resolved. Doesn't mean necessarily they will be immediately resolved, but neither do you make peace with them. You say, hey, I'm, I, I have doubts. I'm going to try to work on them. I'm going to try to labor to have these doubts resolved. You can act like that man that came to Jesus in Mark 9.24, um, the father of the child who was ill, saying, with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And so if you're in this state, affirm what you can and then confess what you can't. Affirm, Lord, I, I believe something. I believe you exist. I believe you're good. I do believe Christ came and he died for sin. But I, 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 conf- I confess, I feel like I have unbelief. I feel like I don't, I'm not sure I'm fully trusting you. I'm, I'm not there. Affirm what you can, but then confess what you can't. And allow God's strong arms to hold your weak confessions. To hold even your weak faith. That God is strong enough to hold even your doubts. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And really, that's a prayer we can pray no matter how strong our faith is. We always have unbelief we're struggling with. Every sin we ever commit is, in a sense, an act of unbelief. A lack of faith in God's goodness and the goodness of his commands that he's given us. And so in this, in bewailing your unbelief, confessing it, laboring to have those doubts resolved, it says he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. It's not just, well, I guess it's okay if you come. It's saying this person ought to come because they need the strengthening the supper provides. The supper isn't for the strong, but it actually strengthens the weak. And we remember from last week, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. it says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Right? The assumption was that the self-examination always leads to the eating. It doesn't say let him examine and not eat, but let him examine and so eat. Because the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's not a mark of grace. Okay? The Lord's Supper is a means of grace, not a mark of grace. And Christ offering himself to you in the supper is meant to be something that strengthens your faith. The, the picture that he is serving you, that he's offering himself to you, is a means of strengthening your faith. The Lord's Supper reflects the strength of God's commitment to you, not the strength of your commitment to him. Christ is the host of the supper, not you. He's the one offering himself for the remission of sins. Um, any, Any questions or comments on question 172 before we go on to the next question? Yeah, uh, Chuck's just bringing uh, the important clarification that the doubts are not um, someone that disbelieves Christ himself or the way of salvation, but the doubting in view is a doubting of the self, a doubting that, this, that I have had some regeneration in my heart, the doubting that my faith is genuine. Um, it's a self-doubt, which reflects a lack of faith in Christ, right? So we're supposed to leave that self-doubt 
put our faith in Christ. And there is a difference also between doubt and disbelief, right? We, we might occasionally doubt certain things in Scripture. We might be tempted to even at times doubt the existence of God when we just hear arguments that throw our faith for a loop. But having a doubt that comes and goes um, or doubts that nag at our minds is different than having disbelief, which is a, a disposition of heart that is continually disbelieving the truth of Christ. But yeah, that, that, that's a good clarification. Anyone else? Alrighty, let's look at 173, which asks, May any who profess the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper be kept from it. Okay, so if we're thinking, well, you've been inviting us to come in our sins and doubts. Does that just mean everyone, wherever, gets to come to the Lord's Supper? Uh, the answer is no. The answer says, such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous, notwithstanding their profession of the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper, may and ought to be kept from that sacrament by the power which Christ has left in his church until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation. Okay, so two cases here are in view of people that should not come to the Lord's Supper, the scandalous and the ignorant. Um, we, can, we can look at these in turn. The scandalous and ignorant should be kept from the supper. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 34, again, uh, Wherefore, whoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And so in this passage, there's actually two things that are implied here. First, it's implied that the person coming to the supper has the ability to examine themselves. Right? We, we might miss that. They have to have the ability to examine themselves. And the second assumption is that they have reformed their behavior in accordance with the self-judgment rendered, right? So if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. The judgment of self is a saying, hey, this area of my life is out of alignment with God's word. I'm going to reform and come to the supper. So implied in that is both ability and that repentance. And if we're considering those um, that this is calling the scandalous, a helpful passage in thinking of refraining from the supper for these people is 1 Corinthians 5, talking about church discipline in the context of the Lord's Supper even. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, it's talking about church discipline, cleansing out the leaven of sin. And verse 8 says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Okay, it's, it's calling the Lord's Supper here. It's, it is the Christian festival, as it were. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he continues later that I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So he's pulling in Old Testament language here. But the idea is that at, in their celebration of the festival, if one is bearing the name of brother, of Christian, and not living in a way that accords with that way of life, they're not to be eaten with in the supper, which is that sign of the unity they have in Christ. Um, some have taken this to talk about um, all sort of social eating and situations, and it leads to a sort of shunning. Um, it seems the Lord's Supper is in view, but also Paul elsewhere says 
to go over to unbelievers' houses for dinner and to have them over to yours. So I don't, don't think it can be talking about that. Uh, but the idea is here um, that the self-examination from 1 Corinthians 11 is supposed to then lead to a self-judgment that, hey, I am in sin, maybe out of accord with some relationship. I need to repent of that and come to the Lord's Supper. But sometimes people are not performing that self-judgment and self-examination and reforming their life accordingly. And sometimes their sins and these things in their life have become public such that everyone has seen the state of their heart reflected in their actions. And therefore, because their personal judgment has proven ineffective, the public judgment of the church needs to come into play. And it can be known from the church's perspective that their life is out of a line, and the judgment then is rendered that they are to be kept from the Lord's Supper. Uh, To bar someone from the Lord's Supper is an act of church discipline, usually prior to excommunication. It's saying, we are not seeing repentance in your life, therefore the judgment is that you are not sufficiently reformed in behavior to participate in the Supper. But the hope is that they will be reforming and repenting, They will not need to be excommunicated and will be welcomed back to the Lord's Supper at a certain point. Which is why it says that they're to be kept from the Supper until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation, right? There's some visible evidences that they are reforming their life and behavior. And when this happens, it's something to be rejoiced in and the person's to be welcomed. 2 Corinthians 2, 7 Paul speaks of the person who did repent when disciplined. He says, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, right? Church discipline is supposed to lead to this reformation of life, but then a reaffirmation of love and forgiveness. And so in considering this, there's a few questions maybe we could ask that we want to think about in our practice. The first is, um, how strict should we be in, fen- in fencing the table? That's what this whole idea is called. Fencing the Lord's table as in protecting it to keep away the scandalous, right? Are we looking for everyone that we know, you know, did a sin this morning or did something? No, it's not quite that. Um, this is looking at it from a church perspective, people that are really officially under the discipline of the church, um, perhaps at various points in the process, but there has been a sort of official public judgment rendered against them, not just um, a sort of personal supposition of what they've been. And if you thought again of that um, 1 Corinthians 5 passage, it's talking about people that are ingrained in a pattern of behavior such that it's their known mode of life. It talks about idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, not someone that, you know, like foolishly got drunk last Friday. It's a drunkard. These are ingrained patterns of behavior such that there is clearly no repentance. And so we do respect uh, the church discipline process, but also the discipline of other churches, other true churches. We respect their discipline in keeping people from the table as well. And we, we, we might, might think also, well, what about unbelievers, right? They're living in unrepentance. Uh, should we bar them from the supper? Yes. Um, unbelievers need to be turned to where they're professing the faith and desiring the supper. And then we might ask, well, what sort of profession is necessary? Well, we usually say a public profession is necessary. Some church traditions allow 
uh, just the idea of a private profession of faith. Someone says, yes, I did believe in Jesus at one point. They're welcome to the supper. But because we recognize the Lord's Supper is a public ordinance and public act that declares publicly our belief in Christ, we have decided that there ought to be a public profession of faith that precedes that participation in the Supper, where we can collectively know and understand the person who is about to join in. And in many cases, if it's an older conversion, this public profession is accompanied by baptism, right? Baptism is the mark of entrance into the family of the church. Communion is the mark of continuation with the family of the church, uh, which is why it's really backwards um, in churches where um, children start taking the Lord's Supper well before they get baptized. Um, it's like beginning living together with someone before you've actually had the marriage ceremony to get married to them, right? You have the ceremony first, then you participate in the sacrament of union and communion. Um, that doesn't mean that there's, that there's never an exception to someone, in a sense, being an official church member. There is wisdom to be able to take this in case-by-case -case basis. Uh, maybe people have a weak conscience or have a hard time with the idea of membership. But normally, it's a public profession of faith that precedes coming to the table. So we have the scandalous, and secondly, we have instructing uh, the ignorant. The ignorant are also not supposed to come to the Lord's Supper. And so, remembering that the two things required to be able to participate in the Supper are the ability to profess faith and the ability to examine yourself, right? Not just the action of these, but the ability to be able to actually do them. So the different lines we have in the, in the passages are things like to do this in remembrance of me or as often as you eat, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Partaking the Lord's Supper implies the ability to be able to truly connect it to Christ, to truly remember Christ in it, and in it to be truly proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. So it implies some level of cognitive ability to make those sorts of connections. Um, it implies also the ability to do so uh, verbally or to be able to communicate that, to communicate the profession of faith, not just have it be an invisible reality, to be able to process through that self-examination. And we recognize that all acts of worship, they need to be attended with faith and understanding in order to be effectual. If not, it's just superstition, right? Superstition says that these things just basically do magical things to you, regardless of whether you understand them. Um, and that's why there's an error for those that uh, practice what's called pedo-communion, which is giving communion to babies or very, very young children. It's an assumption that it's a means of grace to them. But something it can't be a means of grace to them apart from the faith that attaches to it and the knowledge that understands it. If not, it's just superstition. Similarly, I used to be in circles where they considered that we always needed to keep babies in the worship service no matter what, no matter whether they were crying or wailing or whatever, because they said God blesses the babies when they're in the worship. But they're not worshiping with faith and understanding, and it's superstitious to believe that the babies are getting some sort of grace imparted to them by just being in the worship service. Um, and, you know, in that, you might, you might then think it's like, well, what about baptism, right? You know, we, uh, we baptize the babies, they don't have faith yet. How is that a help to them? Well, it's the fact that baptism is a one-time act that we can attach our faith to in a backwards motion throughout our whole life. 
Just as your mom might encourage you saying, I spent 36 hours in labor with you, remember that and treat me better. You can remember the fact of your birth and your mother's travail, and that helps you honor her now. Whereas um, you're never encouraged to remember something you ate when you were two. The Lord's Supper is meant to have a present effect in our life, such that it's only valuable if your faith can attach to it in the present. Baptism, on the other hand, we're always supposed to be reaching backwards with faith to attach our faith to our baptism. So you can do that throughout your whole life, which is why it, um, the, the case with babies is different with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I refer you back to the lectures on baptism. Also, the ability to examine yourselves does imply some sort of level of introspective awareness. right? It takes some level of cognitive maturity to be able to search your heart, to be able to suss out your motivations, and uh, the, the intentions and desires and sincerity of your heart, right? Children don't come to this sort of self-understanding and awareness um, until some point later in life. And so the implication of this um, answer is that Christian children ought to be delayed from partaking in the Lord's Supper until they can truly profess the faith and truly examine their hearts. Now, we understand that's, that's going to be different for different kids, um, Kids mature at different rates. And we, we want to watch that we don't impose on Christian youth um, standards of profession higher than we would of a brand new convert. I've seen uh, children interviewed for uh, the Lord's Supper, and they're given like a theological exam that, is, that most people in the church would fail. Um, we don't want to create arbitrarily high standards. And so the question then comes to us is... Uh, at what age does this cognitive ability to be able to profess faith, the, the, um, the awareness of being able to examine your own heart, when does that normally occur? Well, John Calvin argued that this usually occurs from about 10 to 12. That it's about at 10 to 12 where kids come into a greater level of self-awareness and a greater knowledge of the world that they can um, intellectually come to these knowledge. So he encouraged children coming to the Lord's table at usually somewhere around 10 to 12 years of age. And um, I have a paper on that if you're interested in reading more about that. But I think if you even think of your own children or children you know, there is something around that transitional age of life where there is a greater knowledge and awareness of the world. So um, in my estimation, there's probably a normal distribution, probably a bell curve that's um, probably in the average 10 to 12, somewhere around there, maybe on the extreme low end, maybe 6 to 8, on the higher end, maybe 14 to 16. I'm not saying that they need to come to the Lord's Supper at that age, but that their cognitive ability and um, internal estimating of themselves it will probably generally fall somewhere in that range, which is still a pretty big range. And I think a mistake we make is that we wait for a sh- full assurance of faith to bring children to the Lord's table instead of the reality of faith. Uh, We forget the previous question here, which said that the one who doubts of their being in Christ, if they sincerely want to, sincerely want to leave sin, may and ought come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper isn't given to those who have had a mature flowering of faith where they've overcome every doubt and every sin temptation of youth and have come to just a staid, full, sure faith. That's not who the Lord's Supper is for. Uh, That's the Baptistic error of waiting until uh, youth have had the full, most solid faith before baptizing them. 
No, the requirement is sincere profession and the ability to examine. Uh, the supper is for those who even doubt their own faith, and the supper's also for those whose faith you might doubt. The supper is for those who are weak. It's a strengthening grace. And therefore, I think personally that we err when we withhold the sacrament from children who are able to profess the faith, able to examine themselves, and desire to partake. And if they're doing this uh, privately, then we ought to encourage them to do so publicly because the Lord's Supper is a means of grace given for their spiritual growth. Um, And I'll say this really just as my opinion, so you can take it or leave it. But I think we ought to have a lot, lot more young people in our church professing faith and coming to the Lord's Supper. I think we are waiting too long on average, waiting for this mature faith that comes at their own opinion, instead of encouraging the sincere profession, the sincere self-examination. I think there's potentially dozens that ought to be preparing to come to the Lord's Supper. And I think parents have a responsibility in this. Um, I feel too often the full onus is given to the child. Um, If if you want to do this, if you want to take the, uh, you know, just waiting until they bring it up. This is something we ought to be encouraging our kids. Just as we encourage them to believe in Christ, we encourage them to forsake sin. We should encourage them to make that public and begin to enjoy God in the Lord's Supper. Um, The reasons to refrain from the Supper, we saw in this question. It's scandalous sin as a lifestyle. And this sort of scandalous church-disciplinable sin is generally fairly rare in youth. And the second one is ignorance. This is really our only concern with keeping children from the Lord's Supper. It's whether their ignorance, their inability to truly understand the faith, their inability to truly understand their own hearts. That's what should keep them. But if they're at the point where they are able to accurately understand and profess the faith, they are able to introspect and examine their hearts, we ought to be quickly encouraging them that to move towards a public profession of faith and joining the church at the Lord's Supper. And I think that's something for us to encourage. And I know there's a lot of different church traditions with how this has been done. There's a lot of traditions that kind of um, shuffle everyone through at the same age. We at Grace Fellowship, we take it in a case-by-case basis. We, we trust significantly the judgment of parents to say, our, our youth, is our child, is at this level of ability. They are at this level of self-examination. And we interview people, just as we do for membership. This isn't a one-size-fits-all, because we recognize that people mature and grow at different rates. And so I think, uh, you know, let's really take this into consideration and consider how we can be more intentional in calling forth our youth to come join us at the Lord's table. Um, that's all I got. If anyone has any uh, questions or comments on that. So I think we have to take that um, from Jesus's human nature, right? So in his divine nature, he knew Judas was a betrayer. But according to the human nature, um, Judas wasn't known to be an open or scandalous sin at that time. And therefore, there would have been no um, knowledge or evidence by which to try him or keep him. Um, And so I think Jesus is there as acting on the basis of what he would have known in his human nature, um, the visible evidence, right? And so Judas should have examined his heart, you know, known, repented of his sin. 
But um, we don't know people's secret sins, which is why we can only discipline for uh, public sins. Right, so that, that is the first Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted that Lord's Supper that very night to say, do this very thing I'm doing in remembrance of me. But uh, as far as yeah, being codified in the church practice, uh, that hadn't occurred yet. Yeah, yeah, good thoughts there. Um, yeah, we, uh, we practice like what we call a verbal fencing, right? We fence the table communicatively, not physically, and it's hard to make a 100% biblical argument for a different form of fencing, but it's what seems um, wise, what seems helpful, and you're weighing the pros and cons of you don't want to um, fence in such a way that you keep true believers from the supper um, by fencing over tightly, but you also don't want to fence so loosely that um, you welcome... Um, unbelievers, or, and it's not just unbelievers, right? Anyone could seem like a member in good standing and be unbelieving. We can never control for that. So, which is why we're always looking at that profession and that outward manner of life, because we can't see the heart. Only God sees the heart. But yeah, one more. Yeah, Jacob's just asking, you know, if someone is, ex say they're excommunicated, right? They're not usually kicked out of the church building, but they still, in a sense, you know, forcibly partake of the supper, what would happen? Um, I don't know. I haven't seen that scenario. There might just be, you know, definitely an elder would talk to them and say, hey, like, you are not allowed to take the Lord's Supper here. Whether someone would, like, rest the plate from their hands or something, I don't know exactly how far it, it, 
it would go, but it would definitely be um, something like, hey, this is not to occur. Oh. But um, anyways, we're, we're, we're past time. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have patience with us, that you love us and you serve us and you serve a Christ to us. Thank you for the union we have with him. Would our worship today and even the next time we take the Lord's Supper strengthen our faith? And Lord, we do pray especially for those in secret sin that you would draw them to repentance and a reformation of life. Lord, we pray also for our children and youth that you would be bringing them to a true and clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus, a true and clear understanding of their own sin, and that we would see um, more and more professing faith and um, living the Christian life using all your means of grace. Lord, bless us as we worship you this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen.